Part two, sections one through three of All Things Are Possible by Lev Shestov, translated by S. S. Kotelyansky, eighteen eighty eight to nineteen fifty five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part two, Nur für Schwindelfreie, from Alpine Recollections, section one light reveals to us beauty but also ugliness throw vitriol in the face of a beautiful woman and the beauty is gone no power on earth will enable us to look upon her with the same rapture as before could even the sincerest deepest love endure the change true the idealist will hasten to say that love overcomes all things but idealism needs be prompt for if she leaves us one single moment in which to see we shall see such things as are not easily explained away that is why idealists stick so tight to logic in the twinkling of an eye logic will convey us to the remotest conclusions and forecasts reality could never overtake her love is eternal and consequently a disfigured face will seem as lovely to us as a fresh one this is of course a lie but it helps to preserve the old tastes and obscures danger real danger however was never dispelled by words in spite of schiller and eternal love in the long run vitriol triumphs and the agreeable young man is forced to abandon his beloved and acknowledge himself a fraud light the source of his life and hope has now destroyed hope and life for him he will not return to idealism and he will hate logic light that seemed to him so beautiful will have become hideous he will turn to darkness where logic and its binding conclusions have no power but where the fancy is free for all her vagaries without light we should never have known that vitriol ruins beauty no science nor any art can give us what darkness gives it is true in our young days when all was new light brought us great happiness and joy let us therefore remember it with gratitude as a benefactor we no longer need do after all let us dispense with gratitude for it belongs to the calculating bourgeois virtues do ut des let us forget light and gratitude and the qualms of self-important idealism let us go bravely to meet the coming night she promises us great power over reality is it worth while to give up our old tastes and lofty convictions love and light have not availed against vitriol what a horror would have seized us at the thought once upon a time that short phrase can annul all schiller we have shut our eyes and stopped our ears we have built huge philosophic systems to shield us from this tiny thought and now now it seems we have no more feeling for schiller and the great systems we have no pity on our past beliefs we now are seeking for words with which to sing the praises of our former enemy night the dark deaf impenetrable night peopled with horrors does she not now loom before us infinitely beautiful does she not draw us with her still mysterious fathomless beauty far more powerfully than noisy narrow day it seems as if in a short while man will feel that the same incomprehensible cherishing power which threw us out into the universe and set us like plants to reach to the light is now gradually transferring us to a new direction where a new life awaits us with all its stores fata volentem ducunt nolentem trahunt 
and perhaps the time is near when the impassioned poet casting a last look to his past will boldly and gladly cry hide thyself son o darkness be welcome two psychology at last leads us to conclude that the most generous human impulses spring from a root of egoism tolstoy's love to one's neighbor for example proves to be a branch of the old self-love the same may be said of kant's idealism and even of plato's though they glorify the service of the idea in practice they succeed in getting out of the vicious circle of egoism no better than the ordinary mortal who is neither a genius nor a flower of culture in my eyes this is almost an absolute truth it is never wrong to add the retractive almost truth is too much inclined to exaggerate its own importance and one must guard oneself against its despotic authority thus all men are egoists hence follows a great deal i even think this proposition might provide better grounds for metaphysical conclusions than the doubtful capacity for compassion and love for one's neighbour which has been so tempting to dogma for some reason men have imagined that love for oneself is more natural and comprehensible than love for another why love for others is only a little rarer less widely diffused than love to oneself but then hippopotami and rhinoceros even in their own tropical regions are less frequent than horses and mules does it follow that they are less natural and transcendental positivism is not incumbent upon bloodthirsty savages nay as we know many of them are less positive-minded than our learned men for instance a future life is to them such an infallible reality that they even enter into contracts part of which is to be fulfilled in the next world a german metaphysician won't go as far as that hence it follows that the way to know the other world is not by any means through love sympathy and self-denial as schopenhauer taught on the contrary it appears as if love for others were only an impediment to metaphysical flights love and sympathy chain the eye to the misery of this earth where such a wide field for active charity opens out the materialists were mostly very good men a fact which bothered the historians of philosophy they preached matter believed in nothing and were ready to perform all kinds of sacrifices for their neighbours how is this it is a case of clearest logical consequence man loves his neighbour he sees that heaven is indifferent to misery therefore he takes upon himself the role of providence were he indifferent to the sufferings of others he would easily become an idealist and leave his neighbours to their fate love and compassion kill belief and make a man a positivist and a materialist in his philosophical outlook if he feels the misery of others he leaves off meditating and wants to act man only thinks properly when he realizes he has nothing to do his hands are tied that is why any profound thought must arise from despair optimism on the other hand the readiness to jump hastily from one conclusion to another may be regarded as an inevitable sign of narrow self-sufficiency which dreads doubt and is consequently always superficial if a man offers you a solution of eternal questions it shows he has not even begun to think about them he has only acted perhaps it is not necessary to think who can say how we ought or ought not to live and how could we be brought to live as we ought 
when our own nature is and always will be an incalculable mystery there is no mistake about it nobody wants to think i do not speak here of logical thinking that like any other natural function gives man great pleasure for this reason philosophical systems however complicated arouse real and permanent interest in the public provided they only require from man the logical exercise of the mind and nothing else but to think really to think surely this means a relinquishing of logic it means living a new life it means a permanent sacrifice of the dearest habits tastes attachments without even the assurance that the sacrifice will bring any compensation artists and philosophers like to imagine the thinker with a stern face a profound look which penetrates into the unseen and a noble bearing an eagle preparing for flight not at all a thinking man is one who has lost his balance in the vulgar not in the tragic sense hands raking the air feet flying face scared and bewildered he is a caricature of helplessness and pitiable perplexity look at the aged turgenev his poems and prose and his letter to tolstoy maupassant thus tells of his meeting with turgenev there entered a giant with a silvery head quite so the majestic patriarch and master of course the myth of giants with silver locks is firmly established in the heart of man then suddenly enters turgenev in his prose poems pale pitiful fluttering like a bird that has been winged turgenev who has taught us everything how can he be so fluttered and bewildered how could he write his letter to tolstoy did he not know that tolstoy was finished the source of his creative activity dried up that he must seek other activities of course he knew and still he wrote that letter but it was not for tolstoy nor even for russian literature which of course is not kept going by the deathbed letters and covenants of its giants in the dreadful moments of the end turgenev in spite of his noble size and silver locks did not know what to say or where to look for support and consolation so he turned to literature to which he had given his life he yearned that she whom he had served so long and loyally should just once help him save him from the horrible and thrice senseless nightmare he stretched out his withered numbing hands to the printed sheets which still preserved the traces of the soul of the living suffering man he addressed his late enemy tolstoy with the most flattering name great writer of the russian land recollected that he was his contemporary that he himself was a great writer of the russian land but this he did not express aloud he only said i can no longer he praised a strict school of literary and general education to the last he tried to preserve his bearing of a giant with silvery locks and we were gratified the same persons who are indignant at gogol's correspondence quote turgenev's letter with reverence the attitude is everything turgenev knew how to pose passably well and this is ascribed to him as his greatest merit mundus vul decipi ergo decipiatur but gogol and turgenev felt substantially the same had turgenev burnt his own manuscripts and talked of himself instead of tolstoy before death he would have been accounted mad moralists would have reproached him for his display of extreme egoism and philosophy philosophy seems to be getting rid of certain prejudices at the moment when men are least likely to play the hypocrite and lie to themselves turgenev and gogol place their personal fate 
higher than the destinies of russian literature does not this betray a secret to us ought we not to see in absolute egoism an inalienable and great yes very great quality of human nature psychology ignoring the threats of morality has led us to a new knowledge yet still in spite of the instances we have given the mass of people will as usual see nothing but malice in every attempt to reveal the human impulses that underlie lofty motives to be merely men seems humiliating to men so now malice will also be detected in my interpretation of turgenev's letter no matter what assurance i offer to the contrary three on method a certain naturalist made the following experiment a glass jar was divided into two halves by a perfectly transparent glass partition on the one side of the partition he placed a pike on the other a number of small fishes such as formed the prey of the pike the pike did not notice the partition and hurled itself on its prey with of course the result only of a bruised nose the same happened many times and always the same result at last seeing all its efforts ended so painfully the pike abandoned the hunt so that in a few days when the partition had been removed it continued to swim about among the small fry without daring to attack them does not the same happen with us perhaps the limits between this world and the other world are also essentially of an experimental origin either rooted in the nature of things as was thought before kant or in the nature of our reason as was thought after kant perhaps indeed a partition does exist and make vain all attempts to cross over but perhaps there comes a moment when the partition is removed in our minds however the conviction is firmly rooted that it is impossible to pass certain limits and painful to try a conviction founded on experience but in this case we should recall the old scepticism of hume which idealist philosophy has regarded as mere subtle mind-play valueless after kant's critique the most lasting and varied experience cannot lead to any binding and universal conclusion nay all our a priori which are so useful for a certain time become sooner or later extremely harmful a philosopher should not be afraid of scepticism but should go on bruising his jaw perhaps the failure of metaphysics lies in the caution and timidity of metaphysicians who seem ostensibly so brave they have sought for rest which they describe as the highest boon whereas they should have valued more than anything restlessness aimlessness even purposelessness how can you tell when the partition will be removed perhaps at the very moment when man ceased his painful pursuit settled all his questions and rested on his laurels inert he could with one strong push have swept through the pernicious fence which separated him from the unknowable there is no need for man to move according to a carefully considered plan this is a purely aesthetic demand which need not bind us let man senselessly and deliriously knock his head against the wall if the wall go down at last will he value his triumph any the less unfortunately for us the illusion has been established in us that plan and purpose are the best guarantee of success what a delusion it is the opposite is true the best of all that genius has revealed to us has been revealed as the result of fantastic erratic apparently ridiculous and useless but relentlessly stubborn seeking columbus tired of sitting on the same spot sailed west to look for india 
and genius in spite of vulgar conception is a condition of chaos and unutterable restlessness not for nothing has genius been counted kin to madness genius flings itself hither and thither because it has not the zitzfleisch necessary for industrious success in mediocrity we may be sure that earth has seen much more genius than history has recorded since genius is acknowledged only when it has been serviceable when the tossing about has led to no useful issue which is the case in the majority of instances it arouses only a feeling of disgust and abomination in all witnesses he can't rest and he can't let others rest if lermontov and dostoevsky had lived in times when there was no demand for books nobody would have noticed them lermontov's early death would have passed unregretted perhaps some settled and virtuous citizen would have remarked weary of the young man's eternal and dangerous freaks for a dog a dog's death the same of gogol tolstoy pushkin now they are praised because they left interesting books and so we need pay no attention to the cry about the futility and worthlessness of scepticism even scepticism pure and unadulterated scepticism which has no ulterior motive of clearing the way for a new creed to knock one's head against the wall out of hatred for the wall to beat against established and obstructive ideas because one detests them is it not an attractive proposition and then to see ahead uncertainly and limitless possibilities instead of up-to-date ideals is not this too fascinating the highest good is rest i shall not argue de gustibus aut nihil aut bene by the way isn't it a superb principle and this superb principle has been arrived at perfectly by chance unfortunately not by me but by one of the comical characters in chekhov's seagull he mixed up two latin proverbs and the result was a splendid maxim which in order to become an a priori awaits only universal acceptance end of part two section three recording by expatriate in bangor maine